Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by the Fried Egg Pro Shop. If you're a fan of the Fried Egg, the writing, the podcast, one of the best ways you can support us is by buying some gear. You know, not only do we make a, a little bit of money, not a ton on it, it also gets our brand out there. You know, if you're wearing them around the club or course, people ask you what the hat is, say, hey, it's the Fried Egg. Great website. Great way for you to naturally spread the word if you are into what we do. Check that out. The website is proshop.thefriedegg.com. Today's episode is with golf legend Tony Jacklin. Tony was kind enough to join the podcast. It's a big week for him. He co-designed The Concession, uh, which is hosting the WGC Workday at Concession Club. It's a mouthful, but it, it should be a fun event to watch. Uh, really an interesting design. There's there's some really great holes. We put up a video on The Concession. Definitely can go check out. There are some holes that should be really fun to watch the world's best players play. Some strategic ones out there. And uh, Tony talks about his career, obviously Ryder Cup legend, two-time major winner, one of the all-time golf greats. So without further ado, here is Tony Jacklin. I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. I, I wanted to start by talking a little bit about the famous five, the Europeans that came after you. And obviously you were their captain during the Ryder Cup uh, era where Europe really became a force that it is still today. But can you talk a little bit about Seve, uh, Bernhard Langer, Woozy, Sandy Lyle, and Nick Faldo and, and what made them great players? Well, yeah, I mean, obviously they're, you know, they're a generation behind me. I I knew them all basically when they came on the tour. I was already, I'd already won my majors and, and so on. So I saw them all come to the tours around the mid-50s. They all came on at a similar time and I watched them, watched them develop. And uh, of course, they were all on, on my Ryder Cup teams during the 80s. and. Uh, I relied on them a lot. I mean, they had wonderful careers. Uh, it was wonderful to see them all succeed. It was, uh, you know, it was a, a terrific time for European golf, you know, and, uh, you know, to, to a sort of uh, sort of pioneered that, if you like, was a lot of fun. And uh, there was tremendous uh, between them all, you know, they were all very different. Um, you know, Savvy was obviously... The first uh, real European, you know, that that uh, came along, and he was a swashbuckler, and he was something else—a true superstar and um, great charisma and all that. But in in their own way, they all, you know, they all succeeded uh, tremendously. Talent. Uh, Sandy Lyle was a precocious talent. He, he, you know, I always remember my uh, colleague who passed. Uh, a few weeks ago, Peter Alice, he used to refer to Sandy as having nonchalant power. 
and and it was uh, it was beautifully put because Sandy just had that sort of short bit of a backswing, but boy, when he launched it, it was he had fast hands, and, and then you had you know the likes of Faldo was completely different again. I mean, he was uh, he could call him solitary man. He was uh, he, he he won tournaments and and then changed everything in 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 mid career. You know, he wanted to be. Uh, as good as he could be, and uh, he went to David Ledbetter and and persevered with swing changes and came out the other end a, a better player. Uh, six majors, you know, kind of says it all. And then you had Woozy, who was a, came from the same part of the world as Sandy. Um, you know, they were good friends, had been friends all, all through their lives, junior golf and all the rest of it. But to see him... Uh, Succeed and winning the Masters was 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 terrific. I mean, for for a little a little guy, he he had a powerful punch. You know, the, the, he was a great driver of the golf ball, and his size didn't stop him from getting out there with the big boys. So to to, to see them all develop was was uh, a joy for me. And uh, you know, I played alongside him for a, a little while anyway, and. Uh, so uh, no, it, it it was a thrill to be uh, to observe it all and uh, and to be part of it. Yeah, it's such a I find it such a compelling time in golf because here are these five guys that all play drastically different styles and they all had drastically different personalities. Uh, talk a little bit about you know your experience being captain and and managing the personalities and the the different styles like were there strategies for managing these guys they were all friends first and foremost and uh you know basically i, I stayed out of their way i mean i you know they um i won't go into the boring details but in in 81 Neither Seve or I were chosen to play in the Ryder Cup, and, it, and in Seve's case, he was arguably the best player in the world. So, you know, when I accepted the captain's job, which I did purely on my own terms, you know, I told him, you know, if 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 you don't do or if I can't do what I want, then I won't do it. And uh, they gave me everything I wanted, and so I had no option but to say, okay, I'll. I'll do it. And I, the first thing I had to do was get Seve back into the fold, as it were, because he was, as I was, pretty teed off because of being left out in 81. And uh, But once he committed and, and you know, said, OK, I, I'm going to help you, it, it, was, uh, it was in hook, line and sinker. So I think the mentality of all of those guys, they were all, they were all major champions. They were all winners at heart. And... They, they all believed, as I did, that um, there was no reason in the world we couldn't win the Ryder Cup. We'd, we'd all had a similar, uh, our young lives had all been very similar. We all looked up to America and what America had and what America sort of meant. You know, they had all the money, they had all the great golf courses, they had the climate, they had playing for a fortune where, as in Europe, it was a bit different. Um, certainly in my day, back in, before there was a European tour. So at heart, we, we all had a similar outlook. And, and once we got this thing rolling and I got my basic requirements, 
you know, flying Concorde and doing the same as what the Americans were doing. A, a very big part of that thing was having a team room. You know, in Ryder Cups during my day, uh, we never had a team room. We, we, we were a corner of a locker room and the captain would tell us who we were playing with the next day. And then we would be free to go off with our wives or partners and have dinner in the local town and all the rest of it. Well, I never saw that as a proper way to gel and, and create team spirit. And so, you know, the team room became this sort of central to everything. I mean, the, the, the boys, the, the guys had, uh, there's no reason to go anywhere else. They had food and beverage in there, whatever they wanted. It turned out to be a, a wonderful thing. You know, nobody wanted to be anywhere else when they weren't on the golf course. So, so that got that uh, passion to win started and um and of course the, the the template has been the same ever since the 80s i mean other captains have come and gone but basically they all use that same same template and uh it's been a wonderful uh, well 20 or 30 years for 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 the europeans and and uh, you know they they truly are passionate about about Ryder cup i mean a lot of them have said they look upon it as being a major, you know, to be picked on for the Ryder Cup team is to them almost. I wouldn't quite go that far personally, but uh, the sentiment is there, is there. There's this enormous passion. And and Europe, regardless of where you come from, whether you're Stenson, Sweden, or Molinari, Italy, when that Ryder Cup rolls around, there's a, there's a sort of, uh, oh boy, you know, you talk about team and you talk about passion. This is, uh, it's something to see. It, it's really fantastic. So outside of the team room and then just the flight, you know, the flights, what were there any, what were the other changes that you made um, to the process? Well, I mean, we couldn't travel with our caddies back in my day. You know, if it was in America, we, we had to take uh, who, who we got and uh, clothing. I mean, we'd wear anything anybody would give us. <laughs> I mean, some of some of the stuff was appalling. I mean, plastic shoes we had one year, and the sole separated from the the upper. Uh, halfway around my match against Raymond Floyd in in Pennsylvania, I remember one year, and you know your your self esteem with all these issues, was bruised. I mean, uh, I think it's fair to say that, you know, we were we were travelling on uh, British Airways back of the bus, not knowing who was going to pay for the drinks or our dry cleaning bill that week. And Americans were flying Concorde and, uh, you know, they, they, they were wearing uh, cashmere and, uh, and it's fair to say that we were two down before we ever hit a ball. And, the first thing I wanted to do was remedy that uh, by my demands. And, uh, you know, I, I, got, I got what I asked for. And somehow uh, the European Tour and the PGA managed to pay for it. But, you know, the, the reward was, you know, and the players were unbelievable. I mean, you talk about, you know, I, t I, t I took care of them. I wrapped them in cotton wool. I... I did everything I couldn't play for them. I mean, and they wouldn't have been there if they didn't deserve to be playing. So, 
there was an appreciation on that front and they showed it on the golf course. Do you have a favorite story from the team room or from, from one of those Ryder cups that you, you think about most often? Well, there's a lot of stories. I mean, you know, I mean, I, as I said, I leaned heavily on, on the major winners. Uh, they, they got no rest, uh, respite and savvy. I used, uh, you know, I could go and nudge Savvy and say, you know, there might be a player you could see with his body language. He was a bit sort of iffy or not sure of himself, maybe. I used to say to Savvy, go and give him a back rub. Tell him how well you think he's swinging, you know. And, uh, and, and hey, he was on it like, you know, he'd go up, hey, you, you know, you look good today. I see you on a practice, you know, and da-da-da-da. Uh, and it did it, it did wonders for for morale, you know, to be able to use somebody like uh, like Savvy because he had a he had an, an enormous uh, charisma and and he and having said that he he wasn't easy to to pair up because most of his teammates were in awe of him and didn't want to let him down, but we we. One way or another, we took care of all that. And then, of course, once Elasabel came along in uh, in 85, whenever it was, you know, that was a, a match made in heaven. Can you talk a little bit? I, I did a lot of research, and I, I found a, a lot of stories about what Seve would do to get under his opponent's skin. Could you could you talk a little bit about Seve's gamesmanship? Yes. I mean, Seve was a consummate match player. And... This is a nice little story. In 83, I partnered him with a couple of Spanish guys in practice, and they didn't look comfortable to me. Uh, again, it was back to the thing about being in awe of him. And we had a young player on the team that, that year, Paul Way. He, he was 20 years old, and he just won a, a, a big tournament at Wentworth. I think it might have been the PGA. Anyway, he was full of vim and vinegar. And... I put him with Seve for the last nine holes of practice, and he was great. He, you know, he was turned on by all this. Oh, this looks good. You know, he's not intimidated. So I paired them together the first uh, day, morning and afternoon, and then again the second day in the morning. And uh, it was going great because they were putting points on the board, and, you know, it was all working beautifully. And then at lunchtime on the second day, a Spanish official guy, Hangal Gallardo, came to me and says, I think you need to talk to Seve, he's not happy. So this is at Palm Beach Gardens now, and it's 95 degrees, and I find him in the locker room, and he's peeling his shirt off at lunch. And uh, I said, Seve, everything good? Well, you know, he said, I said, well, what's the problem? What's wrong? He says, it's this boy. And I said, well, what about him? He said, well, I have to tell him everything. I said, you don't, don't, don't eat that club. Don't chip with that club. Do this, do that. He said, I feel like his father. I said, Sebi, you are his father in here. That's why you're playing with him and you're putting points on the board. Is that a problem? And he looked at me for two long seconds. He said, for me, it's no problem. You know, but... I actually thought he understood going in that um, he was he was playing with uh, young Paul and and holding his hand as it were through this whole ordeal. But he hadn't the penny hadn't dropped and and they went out that afternoon ironically and beat Tom Watson and Bob Gilder 
and put another point on the board. I mean, invaluable stuff, you know, but I figured him for uh, all he could, all he was trying to I have to tell him everything, he said. If you imagine yourself as the 20-year-old in the situation, you probably felt like he had to ask all the questions too. Right. And uh, anyway, all... I mean, they were a marvellous partnership in the end. I have to say, I was always looking towards, as a captain, trying to keep the Spaniards together, you know, to some degree, because I thought, you know, national pride and all the rest comes in this, plus they spoke the same language. But uh, uh, when Ollie came on, on stream uh, in 85, getting them together, they were they, they were fed off each other. They were... It was marvelous chemistry. Uh, so uh, talking about your career a little bit, I, I read a Sports Illustrated article where you talked about playing in America as a European and how American players were a little averse to Europeans playing originally. And talk about how that perception changed over time. Well, you know, there were, I mean, the vast majority of the winners, they the the, the the stars, the Palmers and Nicholas's and Trevino's, Johnny Miller's, they didn't care. They were great. You know, they, they their opinion was if you think you can play, you know, come. But uh, there was a, a group out there that didn't travel much. And, uh, you know, I think they were a bit mean-spirited. Uh, they thought um, the American tour was for American players only and, uh, and they were they were tough. They you know they, I mean we we all had it tough when we were young. But these guys in the fifties and sixties, some of them, you know, they, they had a sort of uh, developed a, uh, an, an armor that uh, you know they were they were very um, very self selfish and as I say they were the, they were the ones that didn't bother to travel outside and see that they weren't worldly. Uh, and uh, we had to endure that. We had to play through it, and it wasn't easy sometimes. You know, I played many rounds with, I'm not going to name names, but, you know, they never said a word to me uh, from start to finish. They resented, uh, and especially after I won. <laughs> that was, you know, you might have been all right before you won, but once you won, you, you know, but... Uh, it, it was actually good for me because it toughened me up mentally. You know, I mean, I had uh, softest thing about me was my teeth uh, back then, and uh, and all that sort of attitude from those handful of players helped toughen me up. Yeah, so you were the first European player to win on the U.S. tour since the 1920s, and, and kind of started. You know, you, you devoted a lot of time to playing in the U.S. How how difficult of a decision was it then, when it wasn't the, necessarily the trend? Well, it, it wasn't difficult. I mean, I I I, pro I made a promise to myself in in my teens, and I made a, a decision that you know, if I was going to do this, I wanted to be as good as I could possibly be. I wanted to be the best player in the world, and I know it was a, a long shot, a tall order, but um, that, that passion for the game. I had that, and I was prepared to do whatever it took. I got my first invitation to the Masters in 67 by accident because the fourth player in the European Order of Merit, Neil Coles, wouldn't fly. And I was in the Far East, and I got a telegram to say that, you know, I was number five on the list, and 
So I, I came to Augusta that year and absolutely loved it. Actually, I led the Masters during the, after the eighth hole in the third round. So, you know, I was only 23 then, but I was hungry to learn. And I went to the tour school that year. I had the first hole in one first on television in the UK in the Dunlop Masters, and I won that. And I came and got my tour card. It was a tough year to get it because there was a lot of good hotshot American players from the Walker Cup team deciding to, to turn pro and as well. But I got my card in 67, and I befriended uh, Tom Weisskopf and Bert Yancey, who were equally committed to being as good as they could be. Uh, we were kind of like the three musketeers, I suppose. And, but I was learning off them and we would discuss not just on the golf course, but at night over dinner. And we were all passionate to be good. And uh, I got my chance uh, at Jacksonville in 68 and I managed to, to win there. It wasn't just winning there, but I, I got drawn with uh, Arnold Palmer and Don January the last day. I'm playing... Uh, in front of Arnie's army, coming from where I'd come from, was no easy task. You know, you you, you knew damn well they didn't care about what you were doing. It was all about Arnie and all the rest. But but I managed to get through that, and that that was, uh, you know, putting that kind of confidence in your pocket helps, and uh, that that win really was a precursor to being able to handle the pressure at the Open the next year at Lenham. And uh, and so it goes, you know, I mean, you, 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 there's no substitute for experience. You, you, you know, golf is a game of truth. You can't make it up. Be, being close with Weisskopf, one, one of the things that I, I've heard talked about so much was the his immense talent and what he could do with a golf ball. Can you describe Tom Weisskopf's game for people like me that didn't necessarily get to see him play uh, You know, when he was in his prime? Tom's mentor really was, was Bolt, Tommy Bolt. Unfortunately, he had a little bit of Bolt's mentality in there as well. You know, he... <laughs> Perfectionist would be the understatement, um, but he still, even to this day, puts his right hand on the club just like Bolt did. Anyway, I know I, I was I learned by observing, you know, and playing and watching and copying and that sort of thing. But Bolt, of course, came from that uh, the Hogan era, and uh, you know he and Hogan uh, had great respect for each other. They understood the golf swing. They, they knew what made it happen. And, of course, Tom with his, you know, his six foot three, he was like a guard. He was, he, he stood tall and he had that wonderful, uh, wonderful swing. And we worked, I mean, more or less solely on tempo. And to this day, you know, uh, I tried to get, you know, I've got kids who are pros and we discussed the game I still think tempo is a vital part of uh, being good uh, week in, week out. You know, it was always my central thought. And I mean, Tom would, we would go on the range and he would hit wedges with his knees. I mean, I know that sounds crazy, but the focus was, was on flexed knees and just, you know, turning. And the, the, the thing was, you can't, 
simulate pressure when you're hitting balls on the range. But you can do things that when you are under pressure that help. And tempo is the most important thing because everybody, when they get frightened or, you know, tense, they rush. And if, if you can maintain tempo throughout, I mean, it taught me, every, it was everything to me, you know, because I, I was a good player in the mid-60s. But when I got in a chance to win, you know, I would quicken up. And my upper body would go faster than my legs. Once I learned that the legs went first, which Bolt knew, Weisskopf knew, it got passed on, Nelson knew, Middlecoff knew, Hogan knew. I mean, we didn't know that over in England because the, the guys I was learning off, Max Faulkner and Diaries and Peter Alice, guys like that, they were playing Lynx golf courses where they got hammered with wind and God knows what. And your swing was compromised all the time. You didn't get time to work on technique enough. So when I came to America, I mean, uh, plugging in with Tom and Jans uh, was, was priceless. I mean, because they'd learned from, from, the, from the best. So, so it sounds like coming over to America and playing in America was vital to your success later when you, when you went back and won the Open Championship. Well, I mean, it was, again, you know, winning that Jacksonville tournament in 68 in the circumstances was a big boost uh, mentally for me. Uh, you know, but make no mistake, I was just another player when I came to America. And, you know, it was Arnold and Jack that drew all the big crowds. That being said, when I went back for the Open in, uh, in July 69, there was a big, big interest in me. I mean, even when I turned up to practice, you know, there was an expectation, I guess, in amongst the British golfing public that, you know, maybe Jacqueline can do something. And, and, uh, and I'd, I had a good record at Lytham. It was a course I, I enjoyed playing. And I just, I just got off to a steady start. You know, I'd realized that, uh, you know, golf was as much mental as anything. I was very comfortable. And I, I was turned on, to be honest, with all these people. Mm -hmm. I mean, all of a sudden, you know, they weren't following Arnold Palmer as they were week in, week out when I was in America. They were f following me. And, and I suppose it's fair to say, you know, I didn't want to let myself down, but I didn't want to let them down either. And uh, I just kept putting one foot in front of the other and doing all the things I'd uh, learned. I mean, I'd, by this time, I'd learned that the, the legs control the speed of the swing or you, can, you, you control the speed of the thing through, uh, swing through your legs. And, um, you know, I got in position and I, and I had the... Good fortune to, to hang on, you know, the final tee shot, which is probably the, one of the hardest tee shots in golf because there's no room for error. There's a bunch of bunkers down that last fairway, and if you get in any of them, you can't get on the green. And certainly with the old equipment, that was the case. And uh, that, that final tee shot sort of sewed it up. A corker, as Henry Longhurst said, what a corker. <laughs> and... Uh, you know that was uh, 
that was the dream come true. I mean, when when you win a major, you, you, you're part of golf lore. It's uh, it was it was enormously special, and obviously didn't know that I was going to within twelve months win win the U.S. Open because no Europeans ever held them both together, and uh, and they still haven't. Uh, albeit I, I only had them together for a month, but. Uh, yeah, so how did the how did life change after winning uh, the Open? How how much you talked a little bit about when you came back that the fans yeah. were different, but when you after you won, how much different was playing golf? I mean, the, the bottom line is, you know, I'd been traveling back and forth to America. I had a house in in the UK. I never had a house in America. I had a base at Sea Island in Georgia, which was a wonderful and still is a wonderful facility. But my manager, Mark H. McCormack, uh, he wanted me in Britain. And of course, I should have been living in America. I was wearing myself out. I was back and forth six or seven times a year. And once you start a young family, you've got, you know, it's it's tough. And... uh, and basically, that's when the, the, the problems started. You know, I, I got run ragged by, by IMG in those days. Um, and uh, there, there was no European tour then. And it would be about 72, I guess, when uh, I was approached by the acting sort of supremo in Europe to, to sort of you know, maybe consider spending more time in Europe. And, you know, the thought of that felt good because uh, I'd, I'd already been like five years back and forth. And it's a hell of a lot to to do, you know, six or seven times and time changes and God knows what else. It was a pleasant thought to be able to be closer to home. Uh, but... You know, I was, uh, you know, they were using me to spearhead this sort of European tour off the back of my two major wins and playing on golf courses that were not anywhere near as good a condition as the ones in America. And there's gallery control was virtually non-existent. And I was the only one they were watching. So it was a tough time. And... um, I won tournaments each year here and there, but it was it was dragging on me, you know it wasn't fun anymore it was uh, it became drudgery and uh, I think it fair to say that it basically manifested itself in my putting. I put a lot of pressure on myself you know on the greens and uh, by the time the eighties came around, I mean I won. The British PGA in 82, beating Bernhard in a playoff. But uh, golf was about the only thing I did that made me unhappy <laughs> because of the because of the nervous that, you know, I would get on the green and I've been to psychologists and God knows what to try and relax more. But um, I got anxious playing and uh, it was the only thing I did, as I say, that made me unhappy. So I stopped doing it and went, went to live in southern Spain. <laughs> You talked a little bit about the expectations after you won a major and getting kind of run around and all of the different obligations. You had a similar, you kind of felt Arnold Palmer fell victim to this also, correct? Well, yeah. I mean, it was, life was not my own. I was, 
I hadn't had anybody to learn from. I was, I was it, you know, trying to be all things to all people. You can't say no to this. You can, you've got to do that. It's the right thing to do, whatever. We would go down to uh, Japan and Australia. Uh, when you were wiped out, you know, pretty much exhausted, uh, you, you were required to do all this. And, you know, I maybe got a month respite during over Christmas, but then it all started again. And it became, you know, nothing to look forward to. It was like a, a, a um, treadmill, you know, you, you're just racing. If you don't turn up, if your mind and body don't turn up together, you've got no chance. And so often my body was there, but my mind was playing catch up. You know, I didn't have that time to recharge my batteries there was always somebody wanting a piece of me. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is something that modern tour pros still deal with today. You, you see, hear things of Ricky Fowler spending a, a 30 days shooting commercials and, yeah. you know, you wonder how can you stay playing at a world-class level with that? You know, it, it's just a, it's one of the biggest t- challenges of being a professional and then making money off the course. That's right. But, well, of course, the big difference is today that once these guys are up there for a year or two, they're made up. I mean, the, the rest of their lives taken care of. I mean, when I won my Open, I won three to 4,200 pounds. So, you know, uh, coming from an ordinary background, Financial security was important, and and to make it anywhere worthwhile, you had to do all of these damn things because the money. I mean, I had a worldwide contract with uh, with Dunlop, for, but it was ten thousand pounds. It wasn't two million mm-hmm. or five million like these guys are looking at today, and and also they've got you know wonderful examples now of of. Uh, how to handle it. I mean, Tiger would be, you know, from the point of view of handling his time and all the rest of it. You know, they've got a lot of protection out there and help from their teams and uh, and so on. So that, that side of things has come a long way, but you're, you're absolutely right. You still have to, and different people are, are able to do, some people are able to do more than others. You know, Gary Player was in my day, he would play 27 weeks in a row. I mean, he was like, but, uh, you know, he, at the same time, we would get on an, I mean, I remember going to Australia with him one year and we went to all kinds of trouble getting sat next to each other for some bloody reason. I don't know. And as soon as he got in his seat, he went to sleep. We didn't wake up till we got to Sydney. I mean, you know. I, I I couldn't do that. No more than you know it. Uh, but uh, he had the gift of uh, being able to switch off. And uh, we're all different, but you need to keep your finger on your own pulse. There's no doubt about that. Because once that that momentum goes, it's 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 tough to get back into the rhythm. In 1972, you had the the near miss at the Open, where you know, and and you talked about how that was kind of the the kickstarter to your troubles on the greens 
Have you got? I imagine you've replayed moments through your mind. What What have you kind of learned over the years of thinking about the putting and the struggles that you came to? And if you could redo things, what would you do? Well, I mean, it didn't take me very long to figure out that uh, putting was the most important part of golf. If you can't putt, you can't play golf. It's as simple as that. And, you know, I must have been pretty good putter at one time. I know when I won the US Open, I putted lights out. It was fantastic. I thought I was going to putt like that every, every week. But it, it, didn't, it didn't pan out that way. And I remember playing senior golf, you know, and I used to put the time in there as well. I won a couple of times. But I remember being in Phoenix one time at the Tradition, and I came off the course, I putted crap again, and uh, I spent four hours on the putting green, and there was this old pro came over. He was peddling putters for some company or other, and he's watching me, and he says, you've got a great stroke. I said, no, I know. I said, it feels good. I said, but, you know, I get on the course and I, I get nervous. He said, Tony, you can't putt if you're nervous. It was like, boom, got it in one. And, you know, at that juncture, at that point, I, I backed off. And I was, you know, I'd spent hundreds of hours putting, even on the, in my senior, short, uh, senior career. But um, it was the killer in the end, as, as it's been for many people. I mean, and you're done. <laughs> and uh, it, it's very tough to turn... And to convince, to convince yourself that it doesn't matter because it matters more than anything. Yeah, I, I'm you obviously, you were one of the best golfers in the world at that point. And, it, you know, you, you struggled with the putting. And you know, we see superstars even today getting these ruts. What would your advice be to a superstar that, you know, might be struggling. What would you say to them about getting out of their own way? How what worked best for you? Well, I, I think my my problems with the putting started when um, I pushed myself too hard. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember when I won the Open. I went and had a meeting the next day with McCormack, and all I wanted to do was go and find a beach somewhere where it was sunny and lay and contemplate life for two weeks and get recharged. And he says to me, you can't do that. Westchester's on next week. It's the biggest first prize in golf. You're the Open champion. You've got to be there. And I came to America for a month and missed four straight tournaments. Four. Now, what do you think that did for my confidence? It wasn't until later that year that... um, you see, my time, my mind took off anyway because mm-hmm. there was no more beans in the tin. The, the tin was empty. The try was all gone in the open. And, you know, I was too bloody dumb to sort of say to my you know, I should have just said, go, you know, go and jump off a cliff and <laughs> I'm, I'm doing what I want to do. Yeah. And, and now I would do what I want to do. My problems manifested themselves in in pushing too hard, and uh, look at Nicholas. Eighteen tournaments a year, that was it. Done. That could offer him any damn thing. I know I'm, I'm done. Eighteen, 
because he focused on all the right ones. You know, I didn't realize it until the other day. He played in 160 majors, you know, but his focus was on majors and his schedule was on majors the whole time. So it was, uh, he, he had uh, a very intelligent way of, of going about it, there's no doubt. And uh, when, his, when his course design came along, that was his escape. And the, that and the family were his escape from the, the pressures that uh, he had to deal with on the golf course. I, you know, this is a good, perfect segue here. I, you brought it up. Talk about your relationship with Jack and, and how it came to be that you guys co-designed the concession, which is going to be hosting the, the tour event in a couple of weeks. Well, 66, we played the World Cup in Japan and he played with Arnold and I played with Peter Alice, we became fast friends then. But uh, PJ National was just down the road from his house in 67 when I got my tour card. And that was, I was there a couple of weeks and, you know, we went fishing. And, and then by the time the concession at Royal Birkdale came, the Ryder Cup there in 69 came around, we, we were good friends. And we, we went, went, went through all that and we've been friends ever, ever since. Again, it got everything was based on money. My my European money didn't wasn't worth anything. I wasn't exempt. You know, they didn't give me a free pass. Or, so I had to play two majors, and you're not exempt. <laughs> well, I wasn't exempt. I mean, uh, I had to rely on sponsors' invitations, and if I hadn't won the fourth time up, I, I would have probably got a couple more exemptions, and then been off and I won a couple but I was being force fed it again I was playing 35 tournaments a year because the likes of Dave Stockton and Trevino never seemed to take a week off they didn't seem to like going home they were out there so you had no option but to be out there and you were being pushed and pushed and pushed and I did this for like five years and I came home and said to my wife Astrid I can't do this anymore and she said, well, what are you going to do? I said, I, I don't know, but not this. I said, this is, I'm, it's making me miserable. <laughs> and so I sat up in bed one night at three in the morning. And I said, I know. We built a golf course called The Concession. And there was this developer in Sarasota. He was courting Jack. I knew he was courting Jack to do a golf course for the Ritz-Carlton that was being built at the time. This is around 2000. And I, I went to him with this photograph of Jack and I coming off the green at Royal Birkdale. And, uh, you know, I told him the story. And I said, you know, maybe if, it, if it's considering doing more than one golf course, you might think about doing a course and calling it the concession. He buys into this. He liked the idea. He thought it was great. Um, but he was in in a lawsuit with these partners from the Richardson. And he sort of took, he went on the back burner for a year or more. And then he came to and said, let's do it. So we went to see Jack. And, uh, you know, I, I, we explained it. And uh, he said, yeah, great. Let's Let's go. So we found the land, 
we got it done. We opened in 2006 and uh, it got golf digest. But, and initially I said to Jack, you know, I'm prepared to let you take the lead really in this more prolific, one of the most prolific designers out there said, Tony, if we do it, we do it together, which is what we did. And I met him every day, came in, you know, six or seven, eight visits, whatever it was. We walked around together with uh, his team and uh, we opened in, as I say, 2006. And it's uh, it turned out great. Uh, you'll see in a couple of weeks' time, I mean, it's, of course, it's too much for me anymore. Uh, I'll leave it to these young bucks. But uh, it's going to be a feast. Uh, they're they're, uh, they're going to get beaten up just like I've been beaten up many times around there. What 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 makes it so challenging? And it, if you could, what are a few holes that you're really looking forward to watching them play? No, it, any hole. I mean, it's like playing Russian roulette. I mean, one day it'll be the fourth hole, and the next day it'll be it can come and jump up and bite you anywhere. And especially down the stretch, there's, uh, there's a lot of demanding tee shots. Greens are very, very subtle. You've got multiple choices. They're quite undulating, rolling. You know, sometimes, you know, you can. it's a bit like golf in Scotland. You can putt from off the green from 10 yards if you, if you choose to. But... Um, it's it's a test, and uh, it's going to be interesting to see how these hot shots uh, handle it. Mm-hmm. The greens out there are really tough. You know, the, you get you, it requires such precision into those greens, and uh, especially I I got to play it on a very calm day. I imagine when the wind blows, it's just a whole other beast. Well, and the, and the, the, you get a bit of breeze out there, and. and uh, in February, you can get through cold nights, you know, and uh, they, they quicken up even more. They get firm and quick. Uh, and we've since, since we built the course, we've both nines have been uh, redone and we softened them a bit uh, in places. But it's still, it's still a hell of a test. And, uh, you know, there's no one hole that you could – it's just so many great, great holes and disaster looms anywhere i mean it's uh, it's coming at you from all angles it's very very demanding indeed i i'm very proud to say one day i i broke par i shot 71 off the tips when i was about 60 that's that's just after we opened and uh, that was it i never went back there again uh, you know it's uh, it's long it's brutal and uh, if if it broke <laughs> If it blows, it's uh, even more so. There's uh, the 13th hole, uh, the one I think is par five. And one day I hit that green in three, bit of breeze about, like we were saying, and I putted off the green, knowing it was going to be quick, and the pin was on the front. And as I addressed my 10th chip, the ball moved. And we were going through a group, and I picked it up. I said, gentlemen, I've made enough of a fool of myself. I'm seeing you in a clubhouse. And uh, we carried on. But, you know, I couldn't get back on the green. Yeah. It was one of these humpbacks where the pen was at the front, 
13, you might remember it. It was elevated a little bit. Oh, yeah. that's a, We had a front pin. It's it's like hitting into, under the hood of a Volkswagen. And I played Faldo. Nick came over and stayed and played one day, and he did exactly the same as I did. Uh, putted off the green and, you know, made a, a fool of himself. And uh, we, we were playing in a semi-fun thing with a few members watching, but... Uh, It'll test them. It'll test them, big time. Yeah, I know. Today, still, like the the course records from the tips is a sixty six by John Rahm, and uh, so I mean, it'll be really fascinating to see if over four rounds that stands. Yeah, no, you're right. I know John's been out there a couple of times. Somebody told me that the other day. My son Sean, he plays out there. He plays a lot with uh, Azinger out there, Paul. Is a member as well, and uh, they're both shot in the mid-60s uh, there. But uh, just because you shoot 66 one day, it doesn't mean to say that uh, the, the more you know about it, the, the more difficult it is, I think. I don't know, I might be wrong. We shall soon see, anyway. Uh, but it's going to be interesting to see what, uh, what, what score wins. I've got no idea. What, of course, we don't know what the weather's going to be like. But a bit of breeze out there makes a... Massive difference. Well, Tony, I I appreciate the time. We're looking forward to watching it. I think it'll be one of the more interesting tournaments of the year. Just the there's a lot of space out there too. You know, there's not it's it's not like it's just narrow fairways and and it's got you know and it's got sides of greens exposed where it's you know short grass. So it's a uh, it's not just hard by you know the obvious way. There's a lot of nuance to the challenge. That's right. It's a, it's a great test for good players. To be honest, off the tips, I mean, for amateurs, it's just, uh, it's it's too it's too tough. Uh, it, it really is. Uh, but uh, we'll see. All right. Thank you so much, Tony. Take care. This episode was edited by Meg Atkins and Garrett Morrison, and we would be eternally grateful if you could give us a rating and a review on the itunes uh i don't know what it's called marketplace google play whatever you use your podcast spotify give us a rating tell us what you like or don't like about the podcast and thanks for listening and stay tuned for another episode later this week